See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week's message, which focused on verses 18 through 24 of this chapter, there the author showed us that earthly Sinai, that is the old Mosaic covenant, was characterized by fear and restricted access. Heavenly Zion, that is the new covenant in Christ, in comparison, is infinitely greater, being characterized not by fear and limited access, but by freedom and full access to God. The author having declared the glories, the glorious realities of this heavenly Zion, this heavenly Jerusalem, the new covenant in Christ, now calls for the appropriate responses to those realities, the reality of the superior, glorious kingdom, the new covenant in Christ. And this call to respond appropriately is our text today, verses 25 through 29. In the early 70s, I was part of a Boy Scout honor guard at a naturalization ceremony. The candidates for citizenship that had gathered there had studied about what it means to be a citizen of this country. They had taken a test and had passed a test for being a citizen. And now at this ceremony, they were called to respond. They were called to respond by affirming an oath of allegiance to the United States of America. And from that point, they were called to respond in living in allegiance to America as citizens. It was a great honor for me to be a part of that Boy Scout Honor Guard that led those new citizens for the very first time in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And as I looked on their faces, what I saw were people who were grateful, people who had pride in the fact that they were now a citizen of our great country. And these were people who were committed to allegiance to our country. You could see their grateful and even reverential response, their sense of awe in being a citizen of this country in their faces. And it is a moment that I will not forget. How much more should we respond in receiving citizenship 
in a greater kingdom, a greater country, an unshakable kingdom, the new covenant in Christ, the heavenly Zion. Our citizenship in that great country that is eternal is by grace and through faith and as citizens of that great eternal kingdom our second response having responded in faith to enter now living as citizens of heaven our response is grateful worship in all of life so two points today the response of faith and the response of grateful worship. First, the response of faith to the new reality, all the realities of the new covenant that is in Christ, this heavenly Zion, this unshakable kingdom that our author speaks about. The first response, the primary response, the response that enables us to receive the kingdom is faith. Look at verses 25 through 28. Now, verses 25 through 28, as you will see, actually form a warning. And this is not the first time the author of Hebrews has warned his audience. In fact, if you look to chapter 3, verses 7 through 15, you will also see a warning. Here the, the author exhorted his audience and us even today not to follow the example of the Exodus generation who rebelled against God out of a hard-hearted heart a heart that was full of unbelief. Listen to Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, in our text today, the, the, the author warns believers yet again in a similar fashion not to reject the word of the Lord in rebellion out of an unbelieving heart. In other words... He's warning us against unbelief and in so doing calling us to faith. He says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, that you do not reject him who is speaking, that you do not have an unbelieving heart. And then he argues in verse 25, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? The they, in verse 25, clearly refers to the Exodus generation, as our author described in chapter 3, who at Sinai and throughout the 40 years of wilderness wanderings from Sinai, repeatedly refused to heed the word of the Lord. They chose unbelief so often. They refused to live by faith. And their unbelief and their hard-heartedness resulted in rebellion and they suffered the temporal judgment that comes with unbelief. They were not allowed to enter the promised land. Even Moses, as Bruce read from Deuteronomy chapter 4, because of his unbelief, was not allowed to enter the promised land. And then our author says that if they did not 
escape judgment for unbelief from him who warned on earth, that is from Mount Sinai, our our author warns in verse 25, how much more will those who refuse to heed the word about the realities of the new covenant in Christ that is to be received by faith not escape eternal judgment as the mediator of the new covenant Jesus is speaking from heavenly Zion itself the author warns against he actually warns against rejecting the gospel offer of the Lord Jesus Christ to enter the kingdom by way of repenting of sin and turning to Jesus in faith and trusting him and thereby receiving a kingdom and a destiny that is eternal and that is everlasting, everlasting life and an eternal home in heavenly Zion. That's what's at stake with this warning. And the basis of this warning is the new covenant in Christ is superior to the old covenant under Moses. The phrase yet once more in verses 26 through 27 refer to things that that can be shaken out. And things that can be shaken out are those things that will not last, that will be removed and replaced like the old Mosaic covenant being replaced by the new covenant in Christ. Like the kingdoms of men, as we saw last week, especially from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 in particular, kingdoms rise, the kingdoms of men rise and they fall, but one kingdom remains, and that is the kingdom of our God. Once, yet once more, the author says, there will be this shaking out, and all that is of earth, all that is made, will not remain, and the eternal kingdom of God will remain. He's really referring here to a day of judgment that is coming, where all kingdoms of men, all things that have been made, our author says, will be shaken out. They will not remain. They will ultimately come to an end, and the kingdom of God remains. This is the lesson of Hebrews, and this is the lesson of the book of Daniel, and this is the reason for the warning. The effect of this warning should encourage believers like you and me to persevere in faith. Unshakable faith is required to enter and remain in this kingdom. The good news is that God the Holy Spirit enables us to believe, enables us to repent, enables us to turn to Christ, enables us to persevere, enables us to have that that unshakable faith enables us to strive to keep on believing in Jesus and living by faith day by day. For those who are truly saved in the kingdom by faith, we are promised that we will persevere, that we will reach heavenly Zion, and that we will be welcomed by our great high priest who is there, ever interceding for us. This warning is for us. 
This warning is to remind us what is at stake. This warning is to encourage us to more and more to ever strive to live by faith in this unshakable kingdom. But the effect of this warning should also strike fear in those who have not received the kingdom by faith. And it should lead them to consider their eternal destiny. Lead them to consider the offer of salvation that God gives us in the gospel. Should lead those who are outside the kingdom of God to understand the requirement to enter is to repent of sin, to turn from it, and to turn to Christ in faith and trust him. Given this, what is your eternal destiny? Is your eternal destiny heaven, the heavenly Zion? If you've entered the kingdom by faith and you're living in the kingdom by faith, praise God, your eternal destiny is heaven. But dear friend, we, we must not let this moment pass without also considering that there may be some here who are unsure about their eternal destiny or perhaps knows that their eternal destiny at this point is not heaven. There may even be some here that think their eternal destiny is heaven, but yet they've been somewhat deluded by the fact that, yeah, believe in Jesus, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not ready to make that, that commitment today. Do you know that not making a commitment to Christ is making a commitment to reject Christ? There is absolutely no middle ground. There are two eternal destinies, heaven and hell. And the only thing that enables one to be rescued from the destiny of hell is the gracious work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of faith. And so to put off choosing Jesus is not choosing Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. If you are not certain about your eternal destiny. And I don't mean to be flippant here, but just to simply use an, an imagery that we might understand. When the music stops, do you want to be among those who have no seat? Who remain standing in judgment? Suffering the terrible consequences of God? who is called by the author in verse 29 as a quote from Moses in Deuteronomy 4, God who is a consuming fire. Do you want to be left standing because you have chosen either to reject Christ or to reject Christ by not accepting Christ? 
Today is the day to get that eternal destiny all figured out. And it's a simple step of faith. May each of us consider this warning against the hard-hearted unbelief that is our nature and seek God to change us inwardly give us the ability to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith citizenship in the unshakable kingdom is by faith and now we turn to living as a citizen by faith in grateful worship that's the second response the the glorious realities of the new covenant in Christ, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we considered last week. The first response is faith. The second response is grateful worship for being brought into such a kingdom. After declaring the, the glorious realities of the unshakable kingdom in 18 through 24, and warning that the necessary response to receiving the unshakable kingdom is faith in Christ, verses 25 through 28, the author states in verse 29, therefore, let us respond in grateful worship. As citizens of heaven, grateful worship is the response of living by faith. You've heard of a Sunday Christian, I assume. One who attends church on Sunday, thinking he or she has done duty to God, and then is free to live as they choose the rest of the week. Sunday Christian. Being a Christian is all about Sunday. What about the rest of the week? Ask, live like I want to. I've done my duty on Sunday. Just in case you don't know, there's no such thing as a Sunday Christian. It's not, it's not a biblical concept at all. There's no such thing of, as worship ending, hopefully by 12, as we uh, walk through the back doors, and of course after we shake hands, especially the pastor's hand, and then we leave for our car, worship Worship is over. No. The, the, the author of Hebrews teaches us something different than that. That worship is all of, all of life. Yes, worship includes corporate worship. This is the pinnacle of, of Christian worship. But worship continues past those doors after 12 o'clock on Sunday. And it it flows into every moment of every day in every station of life throughout the week until we come back the following week to corporate worship to get recharged and realigned as we worship together and then we go out and continue offering worship to God and how, how we live. And I don't want to be misunderstood that worship is, this worship service is the pinnacle of the Christian experience. In this worship service, together, corporately, we get what we do not get anywhere else. So there is something significant, special. God's doing something 
in a worship service that is unique and special to that service. That's why we're called to gather. God, the Holy Spirit is at work even now. I trust him to be working through me in this message. I trust him to be working in us to open up our hearts that we would see the glories of the gospel, that we'd see our need for Jesus, that we would see that it's more than just simply Jesus loves me. I, I, that is true, but, I, but I've got to know Jesus and, and all that he's done for me. What does it mean that Jesus loves me? How has he loved me? We need to dive in and explore the person and work of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's what Hebrews has done. That's the author's point here. It's to, it's to declare all that Jesus is to his flock. We need to be challenged on Sunday morning, the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is special, but worship continues in all of life as we leave this place and we need to see life as grateful worship on the Lord's day and in every, on every other day of the week. Now the author in verse 29 calls us to acceptable worship, so what is acceptable worship? First, it is worship that flows out of gratitude. Next week, we'll observe Thanksgiving, and one of the benefits of our national holiday of Thanksgiving is that it, it, it reminds us of the many reasons that we have to be thankful as citizens of this great country, but even more as citizens of heaven. Gratitude begins with, with considering what the author has taught about the person and work of Christ in this letter. Christ is, as we've studied the personal work of Christ, Christ is superior to the Old Testament scriptures. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the angels. He is superior to Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. He is the mediator of a new covenant that replaced the old. He is our high priest who identified with sinful humanity to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice once for all for our sin, who blazed the trail to heaven that we would follow by faith. He ascended, he is sitting at the right hand, he is reigning, he is ever interceding for his people. Even today we can boldly go before the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus is there calling us that through prayer we can storm the gates of heaven. And he's promised to give us the grace and mercy that we so desperately need. He ensures that those who are united to him by faith will follow him, not only living as citizens of heaven today, but will be with him in heaven one day because the kingdom is eternal. Gratitude includes considering what the author says about humanity. What does the author say about you and me? Like the Exodus generation that he's mentioned time and time again, there were sinful people. The author's audience were sinful people. We struggle as sinful people, prone to rebellion, prone to unbelieving hearts, prone to reject Christ when pressured with suffering, ill-deserving and wayward, who deserve eternal judgment. Part of gratitude is realizing who we are before God. 
And gratitude links the personal work of Christ Jesus with our condition and our need. That though we deserve judgment, God has favored us. He has been gracious towards us. He has enabled us to see our sin. He has enabled us to repent of it. He has enabled us to turn to Jesus in faith. He has applied the atoning work of Jesus to us for our salvation. He has received us into his unshakable kingdom as sons and daughters of the living God. He has given us everything for godliness and to live as his kingdom people. He has given us a future. He has given us a hope. We have a destiny that is heavenly Zion. Gratitude. And from gratitude flows worship that is motivated by reverence and awe. That, that's the reason worship is acceptable is that it is reverential. The worshiper is awestruck of God. And the reason we are reverential and awestruck of God at the very end of verse 29, God is a consuming fire. God will not tolerate any rivals. Deuteronomy 4.24, that's, that's quoted here in verse 29 that Bruce read earlier, warned Israel against idolatrous worship. Moses reminded Israel of God's mercy and grace in delivering them from the furnace in Egypt, called them to be his people and affirmed to them that he was their covenant God. In Exodus 19, four through six, God said to the people of Israel, after he had brought them through the waters of redemption, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. And Moses based this warning in Deuteronomy chapter 4 for Israel not to fall into idolatry on the fact that in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We should view worship as in terms of God being jealous for it. And God's jealousy is righteous. He has the right to be jealous. He is the holy, sovereign creator and redeemer He can demand, he demands us to have an exclusive relationship with him. We are the exclusive objects of his redeeming love. God redeemed his people, the text says, from the iron furnace out of Egypt, Deuteronomy 4.20, to be in covenant with himself. That gives him the right to be jealous for his people's devotion and allegiance to him. So let's look at husbands and wives in the covenant of marriage. We should be jealous for one another. 
we are in an exclusive relationship as husband and wife. Even more, God is jealous for his people in this exclusive covenant relationship he has with them. As a husband should not tolerate any rival to his wife's affection, we should, God does not tolerate any rival to him. He will not sit by and let his people prostitute themselves in idolatry. He is a consuming fire. God's wayward people will feel the heat of his judgment if they turn from him and arouse his jealousy. God disciplines us as we looked at earlier in chapter 12. And that discipline will be much greater than what the Israelites felt in Egypt. He will refine his people and his refining fire will burn away all the impurities and it will be much hotter than the furnace of Egypt. And for those who are yet outside of his kingdom, the scriptures tell us that his furnace of judgment will be much greater than the furnace of Egypt. Thus we are motivated by reverence because God is a consuming fire. Reverence is respectful submission to holy God, the creator and the redeemer who is a consuming fire. We are to be motivated by awe and an overwhelming sense of fearful wonder of the holy God of heaven who is a consuming fire. One commentator put it like this, as creatures before the creator, we must tremble with fear. We must reckon on his holiness with a godly awe that produces reverence in all our dealings with him. One enters the new covenant in Christ and becomes a citizen by faith. And as citizens, we are to live by faith in grateful worship, characterized by gratitude, reverence, and awe. Now, as we uh, continue just with this idea of responding I want to bring us to, to an implication. So we've, we've considered two responses. One response is faith to enter the kingdom. The second response is grateful worship being in the kingdom should be a way of life. And I want to focus in this implication on the second response, grateful worship. And I want to break, it, break that out into two sub-implications, if you will. Just bear with me. What is the yardstick of measuring the appropriate responses to being a citizen of our great country? I remember in that naturalization ceremony back in the 70s, I, I saw the response of gratitude. I saw the response of just, just a reverential respect for our country. Over the years, I've talked to individuals who are naturalized citizens of, of our country. 
And this yardstick of gratitude is kind of measures their response to being a citizen of the United States of America. They are grateful for the privilege. And also the yardstick of reverence and awe. They, 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 a, a, they are respectfully submissive to what they vow to in that oath of allegiance. And it seems like the, the greater difficulty from which they came, that, that, that is, those individuals who are naturalized citizens of our country who were a part or citizens of a country that might have been oppressive, even more do they have, even more do they measure up to these yardsticks of gratitude and reverence and awe for being a member or citizen of the United States of America. And just my impression is so many of us who were born citizens of this country probably need to learn about gratitude and about a reverential respect for the great privilege that we have being born American citizens. But given that, how much more should our response to our heavenly citizenship be? Citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem, citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do we measure up to these yardsticks of gratitude and reverence and awe? Does our life reflect that, yeah, we, 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 we measure up? to these responses to being citizens of, of heaven. We have been redeemed from a kingdom that will not remain and graciously and mercifully brought into the kingdom of Christ that can never be shaken. What other response can we have but gratitude that leads into worship, worship that is motivated by reverence and awe. Are we responding appropriately as citizens of heaven? Are we responding appropriately as citizens of heaven when we, when we come to worship, corporate worship, here on the Lord's Day? Do we come having reflected upon how much for which we have to be grateful in Christ Jesus? Do we come reverently that there is a, there is a respect, a, a, a submissive heart to the fact that we're coming before the King of Heaven? Is there a sense of awe, just fearful wonder? Do we, do we tremble? I believe that so much of worship in today's church is casual, man-centered, not reverential, there's very little trembling, unless it's cold in the sanctuary, as is the case here today. I want to challenge us not to get caught up in the way of the world to make worship entertainment, to make worship easy, to make worship casual, to make worship not all that much different than what you might get in some other venue. 
but that we would that our worship would be characterized by gratitude by reverence by awe but this also translates into life in just a few minutes I finished a little early uh, we're going to walk through those doors and we're going to go forth into the world Mondays are coming so is Tuesday and the rest of the week I want to challenge us all to view our lives as an offering of grateful worship to God by everything we do measuring our heart attitude and motives against the yardstick of gratitude reverence and awe applies to corporate worship but it also applies to all of life as an offering of worship to God are we are, are we responding appropriately as citizens of heaven not only here in the sanctuary in corporate worship but in the home is gratitude and reverential fear and being awestruck by God the characteristic of our home what about our family what about our work as we approach our work do we do it as as an offering of worship to God in gratitude and and in reverence and all what about our friendships what about at play listen even when we're struggling with sin this may sound odd But as we're struggling with sin, as, as we're making those choices, may God impress upon us this time to worship. Make the choice to think about gratitude. Make the choice to think about our God as a consuming fire. Make the choice to think about reverence to him, to be awestruck by him. find the strength there there is power and there is strength to change there is power and there is strength to resist temptation there is power there is strength to flee sin and it is in God who has called us in every at every moment of our lives to offer worship that is rooted in gratitude reverence and awe even when we are struggling with sin and I believe if we see all of life more as a worship that by God's grace will flee to him much much more than we will flee to sin all of life is to be lived as a service of grateful worship and reverence and awe and the reason is because we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom by faith. And as citizens of that unshakable kingdom, we are to live by faith in grateful worship that is characterized by gratitude, reverence, and awe. And that worship service continues outside the door of this church and throughout the rest of the week. May God give us the perspective 
But we're citizens of heaven. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, we trust you to give us all that we need to live as citizens of your kingdom, even in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please?